Welcome to the Mind Your OT Business podcast, where we empower and equip occupational therapy practitioners and other healthcare practitioners who want to learn from occupational therapists how to be savvy and successful entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Laura Park Figueroa. Ready to take action? Let's jump in. Hello, hello, everyone. This is episode 30 of the podcast. I love some even numbers and it feels like something to celebrate. I love doing this work for all of you. I've learned so much and I hope you gain so much from this podcast. I love hearing your feedback and your reading your reviews and getting emails and DMs and Facebook messages from all of you. Sorry if I miss those Facebook messages. I hate how they hide the requests or whatever. So I just am so happy doing this work and I know this episode today is going to be of great value to all of you especially for those of you who are interested in insurance-based models or you're maybe considering adding insurance panels. Before we dive in, I want to give some updates on my own businesses. So I thought I'd title this little bit Lessons from Laura's Bizzes. That's kind of hard to say. Anyway, lessons from my businesses, lessons from Laura. Okay, the first one is that I am starting to do more Facebook Lives. I'm getting much more comfortable on video. And if you are interested in little mini trainings in between podcasts, because I only have time to do one of these episodes per month. So if you're interested in little mini trainings on different topics related to entrepreneurship, please join us in the OT Entrepreneurs Facebook group. You can find it on Facebook very easily type in occupational therapy entrepreneurs and you'll find it. It's a group of 7,000 or more now, I think, OT practitioners who are interested in entrepreneurship. And I am starting to do more Facebook lives in there. So if you want little mini trainings, I would say the lesson from that announcement is that I am finding it very, very beneficial to have that Facebook group as a way to share information in a different way, in a different platform. Not everybody listens to podcasts, so I think it's a really great way to diversify my free offerings for everyone. So that's a lesson. Facebook groups are great. That's the lesson from that one. Then the other lesson that I want to share with you all is a little update about the revenue on one of my first online offerings. And I'm going to share some revenue updates with you and talk about what it taught me. So basically, my business pivoted when COVID hit. And we decided that instead of building out a whole leg of teletherapy, we were hoping to not have to do teletherapy because it didn't match our business model because my practice is an outdoor practice where we do stuff in nature. So <laughs> we we kind of tried to keep the long game in mind and think about what our values were as a business and as a practice and stay true to those values. And so when COVID hit, we decided that we would create some resources for therapists who want to take their work with children outdoors into nature. So if you want to see them, they're not available right now. The card is closed. But if you want to see them so you know more what I'm talking about or if that sounds interesting to you, you can go to bit.ly slash therapy in nature. So it's B as in boy, I-T dot L-Y slash therapy in nature, all one word. So you can see those there. So we sold these resources. We had cart open for a week and basically they're resources to help people take their work outdoors into nature with children. We made $19,601 was our total revenue. Now, to me, that is a great first launch. To you, you might be like, that's nothing. and Or maybe you're like, that's crazy good. I'm not really sure what people are going to perceive that number as. But as always, I am sharing numbers to be honest with you about what is going on in my own business and hoping that you can learn from my mistakes and the things that went well too. So I think that I am just so proud of the team for for that first launch. I feel like for a first launch of digital products to have a five-figure launch is really something to celebrate and be proud of the team for coming together and working on creating all of these resources and on the launch of them. So the beauty of this whole thing to me, the lesson in it is that when you pivot, when you do have constraints as COVID has given us recently in your business and you get creative and you think about 
out ways to do business differently. What you can do is then create ongoing sources of revenue that will then provide for the long term for your business. And so that is what we tried to do. These are resources that we will use again and again. And of course, we'll, you know, in a few years, maybe we'll update them. But for now, they are going to be probably several more launches that we can do of these resources for people to really help them take their work outdoors with children and save a ton of time in the process. So our next launch will hopefully be even better than that. So it's pretty exciting. I'm pretty proud of everyone. I want you to think about creating multiple streams of revenue in your business. It's so important to do that. Think about how you cannot rely on just one source of revenue in your business. If COVID has taught us anything, that is a lesson that we should be learning from this whole pandemic situation. And now my business is creating the online course for the nature-based treatment method, the Contigo approach that I developed, and we're, we're hard at work doing that. So we're going to have another thing that kind of came out. This was in the works, but COVID has kind of forced it to the forefront because we had to cancel our retreats this year, our in-person retreats that we did. And I do hope to do those again in the future, but for 2020, we had to cancel both of them. So we are working hard to get that course online and we'll have another online revenue source. So that's kind of cool. I've learned that you can't ever get comfortable. That is what I've learned this year. And maybe you guys have too. So I think in the process, it just helps us be more creative and constraints are that conduit to creativity. Someone said that. I don't remember who, but it's a quote. Anyway, so today we are going to talk with Joanne Keller. She is a very successful hand therapy clinic owner, and she is going to share with us the insider tips that she has from her work over the last many years running her practice on how to run a therapy business that is insurance-based. So she is primarily an insurance practice. And I've had some feedback from interactions with some of you online about, oh, you're a cash-based practice, but what about insurance? And I realized I had never done an episode on that. So I purposefully reached out on Facebook to try to find profitable insurance practice owners because she's very open about how much money she makes and just talking about money. I think sometimes it's hard for people to talk about money for whatever reason, and that's okay. It's okay to be private about it. But part of this podcast is to kind of pull back the veil and be transparent about business ownership. So I really appreciated that Joanne, when she reached out to me to volunteer to come on the podcast, she shared some real numbers with me about how much she pays herself and how much her practice makes. So you will hear that in a bit. That's your teaser to keep listening to hear all of Joanne's goodness. So here's my conversation with Joanne Keller. She is the owner of Hands for Living in Linwood, Washington, and she also does coaching under Joanne Keller Coaching, which she's been doing for a few years, used to do it for people she knew, but then now is kind of making that a public service because probably more and more people are coming to her, which I'm sure some of you might call her after you hear how much she has to share on this episode. But Hands for Living is her practice that we are going to be talking about on this episode. It is a primarily insurance-based hand therapy clinic. It's a specialty clinic. She started in 2011. She has seven providers, about three are full-time equivalents. Nearly all of them are part-time. They're all OTs. There's five certified hand therapists one OT who has nearly a year of experience and then an OT assistant. So that's kind of the makeup of her of her practice. Her annual revenue, this is why we should listen to her people. Her annual revenue has more than doubled since 2017. They're on track for about 700,000 in 2020, even in spite of COVID. We are recording this in September of 2020 after six months of the coronavirus pandemic. This is amazing. These numbers are amazing. And the other thing I think is important for all of the listeners to know is that her primary source of income is the clinic. So she has had personal earnings and she shared this with me and knew that it may be shared. So I'm going to go ahead and share it. Personal earnings from 125 to 225,000 after her startup year. So that is why I brought her on this podcast because I want her to talk with us about how you can grow and scale a practice using an insurance-based model, okay? So with all of that being said, welcome, Joanne. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I cannot wait for this conversation. I just think you have so much wisdom to share that bio tells people how expert you are on this. But I want you to start out by sharing with us, what was the start of all of this successful practice that you have now? 
The start of all of this, as for many people, was was actually kind of a bad situation. I had been the director of therapy for a group of hand surgeons just north of Seattle for about seven years. Mm -hmm. And that practice had gone through some changes and morphed and struggled. And, you know, even physician practices struggle. Mm -hmm. That is not unique to therapy businesses. Right. That business had gone through its own difficulty. And at some point I thought, this is not my future because there was a very specific episode where I just knew I was like, my work here is done in this setting. I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I'm finished here. Yeah. And so I made a list of options of things, everything I could think of. What could I do next? I do need to earn a living. Made a list of options and then just started investigating them, getting information, trying things on for size and crossing them off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what I was left with in that thought process, and I had a lot of time, I had to give 90 days notice. Okay. Three months you had to think about this. (laughs) More than that, because I didn't even give notice right away. But what I was left with was starting a clinic or getting a graduate degree. And any good, hardworking, Minnesotan, German heritage, (laughs) why not do both? (laughs) You sound like me, maybe. (laughs) Or <laughs> two peas in a pod. <laughs> I'm super excited. I'm also a happy backpacker, hiker, skier. So I'm thrilled that you're getting kids out into nature. <laughs> so it was that that time frame in early 2011 that I thought I've been a hand therapist for however long at that point, 14 years, 13, 14 years, something yeah. like that. I've worked in a number of different settings. I love. I still love what we do. Right. But I don't want to do it here. I had worked in other settings as well. So I thought, why don't I just hang out a shingle, see what happens. I had the luxury of being married at that point, which made mm-hmm. it easier. I knew that I could buy groceries and have a roof over my head. That is not a prerequisite <laughs> to starting a business. It's not, but it helps. Yeah. It, it made it more comfortable. So people say, oh, you're so brave. And it's like, well, I wasn't going to go hungry. Right. <laughs> right. We could, we could pay the mortgage. So right. Um, That made it easier, but it also meant that I negotiated with my husband in terms of like, how much are we willing to risk on this idea? Where does the cash, initial cash come from? There has to be some to start. Right. And at what point would we decide or would I decide that this is not a viable project? Yeah, Um, that's good conversation to have early. That's great. Yes. And so we had some cut points. We decided how much we were willing to risk. Okay. And we loaned the business $10,000 from the household savings account. That's not a lot of money though, to start a business. You know, I mean, it's a lot of money if you only make 30 grand a year, but in the scheme of all businesses, 10 grand isn't a lot to start out, you know? No, but I'm also exceptionally frugal. Yeah. So it was hard. (laughs) (laughs) And many, most OTs are, we're happy to scrape and be creative and make things and wait. And, you know, that's, that's in our fabric. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. But I had also ended up needing to commit to a lease. And so we figured out my total commitment in terms of the lease was another 25,000 to 25 or $30,000 before I could get to the out clause. So we also knew that we were paying that money. Yeah. So in, in all, we were risking, you know. A good amount. Figured, yep, probably close to $50,000 that were committed before I started. Yeah. This is so good for people to hear <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yep. I, I originally wanted to rent space from another clinic. So I called a whole bunch of clinics and lots sure. of therapists start this way. Like, all I could see was the three months ahead. Where do I where do I go with my patients for the first three months? Right. But at the time, the clinics were super busy. Nobody had space. And I ended up exploring commercial lease oh. options. And okay. I realized very quickly, this probably wasn't a three-month project. We weren't going to know a yeah. year or two years. 18 months was the out clause in my lease. <laughs> thought, I'm going to do it at least that long because right. this doesn't happen overnight. Right. Well, you had, it sounds to me like you had a good understanding of the network of people in your area that would possibly refer 
to, and I know we're going to talk about referrals. So we, we've talked some about that, about when we planned what we wanted to talk about, but it sounded like some of the keys to your success were having a, having a good understanding of the market, right? In your yes. area, Absolutely. knowing the financial, like you did some good financial calculations yep. and having the safety net is, is helpful too. You know, like another steady source of income is helpful too. Are there other things that kind of, as you got started, you feel like were foundational to your success? There are probably two more things that come to mind. One is you can provide your own safety net. Mm -hmm. If you're on your own, it is totally not unreasonable to start a business. You can provide your own safety net. It probably points toward either getting a business loan or having savings or a chunk of money that you can start with that is more than $10,000. You probably need more insulation than that. The other thing I did, I was wanting a very slow startup because of being in school as well at the time. And so I also took a per diem job and I worked per diem until I could see whether or not I was going to get referrals. So at least we had a fair portion of my income that we were used to, we yeah. had some of that income still coming in and it helped to hedge the amount of money that I was risking. Yeah. I think a lot of people do that too. That, that And I, I encourage people when they're thinking about starting businesses to just, you know, you don't have to go all in, quit your job. You can start right. seeing a few clients on the <clears> side <throat> and then really know if, and I've known people who tried entrepreneurship and didn't like it and that's okay. Yes. Like not everybody is going to be an entrepreneur. Like to go all in when you're unsure, it's it's a smart idea sometimes to just do that kind of slow. And then you, if you find you really love it, then do the leap, you know, you can yes. take that leap when you're when you're ready. So in one way or another, you need to know that you have enough money coming in or in the bank to live yes. on yep. for the amount of time that you think it will take to generate the income from the business. And you never know for sure how long that is, but you, you need some estimates. I have so many questions. So let's, cause that was kind of the start of your business. And I know you've been in business almost 10 years now. So you didn't go straight from, you know, we're making 700 grand the first year of business. No, like tell me about your first referrals. Like how did you start out when you first got started getting the flow of clients coming through so that then you probably got to a point where you were like, oh, this is going to go. We're not going to shut this thing down. It's going. (laughs) So tell me about that process, like getting the referrals at the beginning. My initial referrals actually came from other therapists. My very first one, I wasn't actually ready to start, but one of my friends called and said, I've got a client for you. And uh, I said, okay. No, I'm not ready, but I'll do it. I actually have a place. So he, he owns a return to work clinic and an industrial rehab clinic that is close to my house and is close to the area that I was setting up. And so I said, well, I don't have a place to see him. And he said, well, you can see him in my clinic. So he actually let me use his clinic in the evenings Okay. Until my space was ready. And so that was my first referral. It was one of the interpreters that was coming in with a client, had a daughter who needed hand therapy, was willing to pay cash because I didn't have my insurance contract set up. Okay. And I said, okay, I can, I can do that. <laughs> so you have some cash pay p- clients too who don't yes. use insurance? Okay. Yes, but it's a fairly small portion of our right. business. And then did it just grow through word of mouth? Did you do advertising? Like how did you get the steady flow of referrals coming in after those first few? My initial marketing campaign was one email sent to about six hand surgeons that I knew in the area. Okay. I thought, well, here I am. (laughs) Right. I had worked with quite a few of them because a number had cycled through the practice that I was in. Okay. And that's the obvious one for hand therapists, right? Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And so I just let them know where I was. I didn't solicit or ask or push and just said, I am still working. I'd been, you know, unavailable for a few months. I said, I am still working. This is where I'm working now. I'm happy to help if you have questions or anything about hand therapy. Offered to serve their clients. Yep. And then the referrals started to trickle in. And then I I continued to talk with other healthcare practitioners, other physical therapists, other OTs in related fields and letting them know that I was there. Okay. I would say that is your number one 
way to start is to start calling everybody you know and call people you don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's the hard work that that we shy away from a little bit. I think when yes, we're getting started. <laughs> I just did an Instagram story yesterday about I'm studying for my exams and how, you know, the easy way to study is to like read and reread everything. The hard way to study is to actually do the writing, you know, it's, it's the same thing with referrals. Like it's easy for us to like put a social media post up, which 10 years ago wasn't really as much the thing thing as it is now. Right. (laughs) But nowadays, you know, it's easy to put up a social media post or even for, you know, the younger people who are starting businesses, it's easy for them to do a video or something. But when you're first getting started, asking for those referrals and making those connections is it's like the thing we don't, we don't want to call people and ask about our business or, you know, <laughs> have those personal connections. It's kind of awkward sometimes. We feel self-promoting or something. So you, you got to do it. offer to serve them or serve yes. their clients. How can I help you with your business? Yes. Is there something that you need from a hand therapist? Do you need information? Physical therapists will treat hand therapy clients, but they often don't splint or aren't good at splinting. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. So I get I get referrals from PTs who are treating hand therapy clients that just need a splint or an orthosis. And I'm happy to do that and to send them back to yep. the person who's treating them because it's respectful. And if that's what, you know, more often than not, they say whatever, they don't care what happens to the client as long as they get what they need, which is yes. what I feel as well. If we help them with a brace or a support and an orthosis and they're happy and getting what they need where they are, great. Keep yeah, that up. that's great. It's like a way of being really collaborative and really knowing your niche and knowing how you can serve not just your clients, but serve the people who are referring your clients to yes. you. I think that's so important rather than sending like a postcard to, for me, it would be like a pediatrician's office or something. Talk to the pediatrician and say, how can I serve your practice? What does your practice need? These are some things that I could offer and see what they need. I mean, I think that's a great way to get referrals and a way to think about you're reaching out not just to get referrals, you're reaching out to serve the referral source even and mutually serve the clients that you're both serving. So. I love There's that. A tremendous amount of overlap in the circles of people that seek care. For instance, some of the referral relationships that I very much enjoyed have been chiropractors or other, like I said, other therapists. Right. The orthotics community, not the obvious ones. I met a chiropractor from my town on a backpacking trail. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. We both got skunked on a campsite on a trail that we had a referral Ugh. for. So we ended up sharing, not skunked in the the animal way. Somebody took it. Oh, I thought you meant like sprayed by a skunk. No. I was like, oh. No, that's the lousy way to meet somebody. Yeah, right. <laughs> somebody took our campsite right. in a restricted area. So we all ended up in a nearby alternate site and ended up chatting with them. Oh, that's funny. She's a chiropractor in Linwood. I'm a therapist in Linwood. Our practices are less than a mile apart. We've trained Oh my patients. gosh. <laughs> you just patients. never know, right? No. You never know <laughs> when you're going to like meet someone that could be a referral source. It's crazy. I love you know, it. These are the things you cannot see at the beginning. Yeah. You don't know yeah. how it's going to unfold. You have to make a decision to do this and trust that you will find the way. Yes. Yes. I think early on, I had at least, I don't know, maybe... Maybe I'm not alone, but I had a lot of like laying in bed, falling asleep at night moments where I was like, what if blah, 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 you know, and and I just had to be like, if that happens, you cross the bridge when you come to it, you know, it's like, just focus on the next step, the next thing you need to do. And don't worry about, well, what if in five years, blah, 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 you know, like you, you have to plan and you have to think and you have to be growing your business and have the goals in mind and all of that. But also there's a point at which you just the pandemic is a great example of none of us could have anticipated this, you know, so you could worry about it all day long, but it doesn't really help. Like just staying focused and knowing that you're going to figure it out <laughs> when, whenever you hit a obstacle. So I, I want to get into talking about, so we talked a little about referrals. Let's talk about how you built this practice as an insurance-based practice. So I think I want to start with the question of having you speak to people who are considering that question of, this is posted a lot in the OT entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. group, 
I'm sure. considering if I'm starting a new practice, I might just do cash-based. I don't know. Maybe I should do insurance. What would you recommend? So let's ask you that. Like, what would you say to that question? There are pros and cons to both mm -hmm. uh, is the obvious one. And nobody can tell you which one will be better yeah. for you. Again, you will make the decision and you will make it work. Yeah. I do think there are some situations that point more to one or the other, sometimes related to the types of clients that you'll see and the service that you'll provide. In my case, in a hand therapy clinic, often people have had the fracture, they've had surgery, they've had a tendon laceration, they've torn a ligament, they've gotten medical treatment, yes. and they're looking for medical therapy. That's pretty classic medical model kind of stuff. It is harder to convince that type of client to pay cash, not yeah. impossible, but if you are going to ask that person to not use money that they have from an insurance company for their treatment, then your reputation has to be so strong that they don't care. Yeah. And yeah. most people starting out, are your reputation and your referral mechanisms are not that strong. Yeah. To overcome that. So the primary pro to taking insurance, especially for something that would be considered a medical service, is that your pool of potential clients is larger. Mm -hmm. More people want to use their insurance if they have it to get services that they deem medical or that they think are medical in their mind. Right. So your pool of potential clients is larger your potential referral sources for in the medical community are probably more. So you have a bigger pool to draw from. The obvious downsides are that your income from that visit is then capped by the fee schedule that the insurance has set. Right. And you don't get to choose it or market or sell it. And the other is that you have the administrative headaches that come with working with insurance and pre-authorizations. Billing is much more difficult, not impossible. You can learn all the things you need to learn to take insurance. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting pool of knowledge and you need somebody probably quickly working with you that's tenacious yep. and organized. Yeah. Okay. So that was one of my follow-up questions. I think I said, I might ask this if we have time, but I am going to mm -hmm. ask it. So would you recommend then it sounded like you you kind of just said you might need someone kind of quickly <laughs> once you start to grow a little bit that time that you spend calling the insurance company to follow up tracking all of what you've billed what you've gotten back what is still pending all of that takes time and when you have the reduced fee you know a cash pay system is is fairly straightforward they pay time of service or whenever you bill them and you get yep. the payment and it's done right but with the way that insurance works i think a lot of times at least i do i've billed insurance as an out of network provider before and that was enough to make me like i am never <laughs> doing this again like when we moved i was like i'm not i'm not going to do that i i did it way back 15 years ago in my or 20 Gosh, it was a long time ago in Miami when I lived in Miami. So I never, I never did out of network billing here in California where I live now, but still have a little twitch when but, you say that. <laughs> I know, I know. Because it was so many hours. It was me and a physical therapist both seeing twins. And you know, PTs and OTs sometimes use similar codes, right? So yeah. it was a huge mess. They had her under my social security number. I was like a sole proprietor at the time. I mean, it was a mess. So it turned me off from insurance forever. So I'm happy to learn from you now, someone who has done it <laughs> <laughs> profitably. But I guess what, what I'm saying is that that experience showed me how much time it can take. So how much does a person who is getting started in this need to learn to kind of get started? Or would you recommend right from the start, they get someone who is a medical biller? That's the type of person you would hire, right? Someone who's a medical mm -hmm. biller. Would someone need that right from the start? Or do you think they should learn it and then hand it off? Because in some ways, business owners, it's good to know what other people are yes. doing for you, you know, but what would you say? Probably varies in different situations. But if you are a solo therapist, solo, a single therapist practice, you probably can do your own for a while if you want to. And some people are more interested and committed to, I want to understand how all of this works. Right. Then they are, and, and those skills serve you well. But then some people are slow to let it go, even once they're busy. Right. 
And so those, those decisions really have big implications because if you are learning at the beginning, the things that you're learning are going to take you five times as much time yeah. as it takes somebody to do the process who already knows how to do it. Yes. So if you think about that being a, say, 25 to $50 an hour task to have somebody good overseeing that process for you, your time is probably worth more and you're going to spend three times or more yes. the amount of hours that it will take somebody else. So they are both cheaper and faster if yeah. you know what they're doing. That's a great point. I think sometimes, and what I heard you say, my takeaway from what you just said is just the reminder that if you are going to grow a practice, you have to let go of things. You have to let other people do things. You can't be holding on to the things that are those $25 to $50 an hour tasks that someone else could do for you much more quickly and efficiently than you can too. So it frees up time for you to then take on one more client and make $200 or whatever you, well, maybe not if you're taking insurance. So we should talk about how much That's insurance actually reimburses. I, I'm interested in this too. Is there a way for people to know before they sign on with an insurance company? Talk to me about the process of getting those contracts signed up, becoming an in-network provider. How much can a therapist know before they sign that paperwork what they're going to be reimbursed for certain codes? Or can yeah. you? <laughs> yes, sort of. Okay. <laughs> The data that is available to everyone is the Medicare fee schedule. You mm -hmm. can find that. You can look at what Medicare pays in your region for each code. You is that the same as Medicare? I mean, I know Medicaid and Medicare are different, but it, does the Medicare fee schedule apply to Medicaid as well? Because it's like a government no. fee. No, it's not. No, it's a different it's one. completely different. Yep. Because Medicaid is state run, correct? Yes. Okay, so you might have to look up your Medicaid fee schedule if you're doing like pediatrics or something? Yes. Okay, so Medicare um, for medical model adults, Medicaid adults for, for kids. kids. And that will give you one data point. In our case, and this is very state or region dependent. Oh, yeah. And I really want to highlight that. So in our case, I kind of knew because I had been a manager, a director of a practice, I kind of knew about what I should get per visit. Okay. Given that, So I had that information in my mind that helped me to do some of the budget projections preliminarily. The disparity can be huge between, in our case, in our state, Medicaid might pay 12 to $15 for a code. Yeah. And if, even if you build three or four of those, that's $60 or less, sometimes 40, sometimes 30 for a visit that might take you an hour or might take you plus all the, the administrative process of getting exactly. onboarded and tied in. And it's not just the hour you spend with the client, right? You plan the equipment, you plan the session, you coordinate it with the parents, you, you um, document. So, <laughs> yeah. yep. so there's that low, in our case, the low end of that, the higher okay. end of that for us is labor and industries, our state workers comp system. Those codes, those same codes, instead of twelve to fifteen dollars, pay more like twenty-five to thirty-five dollars. Okay. And so, if you do four of those, we know that they have a daily rate, so they don't pay over a set dollars per day. It's about one hundred and twenty dollars and a little okay. bit right now. So, if I see a workers' comp patient, I know that unless it was a particularly short visit for some reason, I know right. that I can count on roughly 120 and change, okay. changes each year. So that's the spectrum, Medicaid, the low end. Medicare yep. is a, above Medicaid, but still lower than commercial payers, regular health insurance, as, we, as you know it through your employer, which is better than Medicare and less than workers' comp. So for okay. us, the L&I, the labor and industries, the workers' comp fee schedule is also publicly available. Okay, so what I hear you saying, let me make sure I'm understanding this, is there's kind of a range of publicly available numbers that you can look at, just find them online, where Medicaid is gonna probably be the lowest, Medicare maybe a little bit more than Medicaid, and then there's going to be a slew of a bunch of private insurance companies somewhere on the spectrum between Medicare and then the highest might be workman's comp. LN, what did you say again? LNI, labor and labor, labor and industries is our, is Washington's work. Labor and industries. Okay. So this is very, what you said is very accurate. I have looked up codes for Medicaid because I have thought about, I wonder if we could serve a wider network of people by taking Medicaid, right? And it was 
$11 a unit. I yes. could not pay a no. brand new grad therapist. I, I couldn't even pay a CODA. So to provide the service in a group setting, I mean, it was just, it was, it blew my mind how yes. low it was. And I just, it just frustrated me because I felt like, how are we being expected to provide quality evidence-based services and do good quality care for that amount of money? It's like they expect that we just are going to volunteer, which you know, I'm all for volunteerism, but I don't know how anyone can pay themselves and pay employees and pay all the added costs of a business. It's not just your payroll, right? That's the business. I mean, you have rent, you have supplies, there's lots of other things that go into a business. So I don't know, it was so discouraging to me. But then I saw I'm getting to a point here because I have a question for you. So then I saw on the same fee schedule for Medicaid, I saw that the sensory integration code, which is a lot of the work we do with kids outdoors in nature, it's like not in a sensory integration clinic, but we use that yeah, mindset, yeah. that framework a lot, is reimbursed supposedly on the Medicaid statement in California of the codes is reimbursed at like 29 a unit. So to me, I was like, okay, well, that's closer to, I mean, we, we charge 175 for a almost two hour group session. So if we were going to do an individual service to me, 120 is like still not as much as I would charge for an individual session here in the Bay area it would be more like 200, but it's getting more up into the range where I could actually cover the employee's payment, right? If you cannot cover your costs, it is not a business. Exactly. Exactly. It's a charity. Yes. Or a hobby. Yes. Exactly. I say that all the time. If you're not profitable, you have a hobby. <laughs> so, I mean, within a little bit of time, sometimes people start out, they're not profitable. Of but course. how could I know what my question was? How could I know? Like, so I could look at that and say, okay, well, maybe we bill sensory integration for three of these units. I mean, ethically, you have to be billing what you're actually doing. But let's assume it was ethical for me to bill three units of SI and maybe a unit of Therax or activities, not exercise activities. I feel like Medicaid could come back and say, oh, we don't reimburse for that sensory integration code. That's like outside of our, we don't reimburse for that. So then it feels like, how do you know which codes, which insurance company will actually reimburse for? Like they may have the schedule out, but it feels like they're very nitpicky about like which yes. specific codes and what can be combined to protect their overhead. They don't want to pay out as much right. as we're worth. So how do you figure that out? Like how can therapists learn about that? Are there resources? Are there trainings? Do you learn it as you go and kind of fumble through? Like how, how do you, how did you learn? If I were considering viability of, is this a practice that I want to start and can this happen? You need that information somehow. Yeah. So you may get it by interviewing other similar practices in the area. Mm -hmm. I cannot underscore enough to call the people that you think are your competitors. Most people are so excited to talk to somebody who is interested in what they're doing. They will help you yeah. or point you to somebody who can. Yeah. You probably need some information. You could call the insurance company directly and say, I'm interested in enrolling as a provider with your network, these are typical codes that I bill. Are those reimbursed for your clients? You may or may not get an answer that is terrifically, deliciously helpful. If you don't <laughs> like the answer or feel like you didn't get the right information, hang up, call again, hookah. Right. <laughs> useful, useful skill in dealing hang with insurance up. companies. Hang, <laughs> hang up, up, call again, hookah. That yeah. needs to go in the show notes. That is hilarious. <laughs> Do you it know what hookah for, is? <laughs> useful for booking plane tickets. It is useful for dealing with insurance companies. Right. Hang <laughs> up, like call it. again. And if you get an answer you do like, write down their name. Yes, we, absolutely. We document who we talked to on what day, what they said. Most insurance companies will give you a reference number for the call. Yes. We document that so that you can Very say, important to do that. I talked to them. So those things... I do want to jump back a tiny bit to sure. the progression of payers that we talked about, and it kind of speaks to that. Within the commercial insurance section, for us, that's between Medicare and the state labor and industries. Mm -hmm. There's variation there, too. There are some exceptions. There is a payer in our area that pays a flat rate of $70 a visit. Hmm. So not all of them will fall in that general progression. Okay, okay. But And that is painful, and that's in the yep. donating. You might as well take the patient out to lunch, <laughs> hand them a $20 <laughs> right. bill. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and talk about anything you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
Oh my goodness. With an asterisk. But you did touch on an important point there too about knowing what you can and what you should bill. You want to bill because if you're going to take insurance, you need to earn as much as is ethically, reasonably, correctly possible for the service that you're providing. And I will say therapists are, we're all good hearted, giving caregiving, altruistic, loving souls who will give away their shirt. (laughs) It's important to know which of those codes describe or best represent the level of skill that you're providing. So if you're any kind of insurance practitioner and you're only using manual therapy and therapeutic exercise, you're leaving money on the table. What we do is more mm. than that. Yeah. The neuromuscular reeducation, therapeutic activities, the self-care and ADL code, if your payer covers it, pay better than manual therapy and Therax. And yet we default to those because they it doesn't require oh, interesting. thought or care in how and you document. So is that kind of across the board then? That's kind of like what you just said is kind of across the board. Is there general, I think that would be really helpful information for people. It sounds like what you just said is kind of a blanket statement about there are some codes that generally pay better than others across the board. Yeah. Okay. And you can, that'd be the other important reason, reason to have one of the fee schedules, Medicare or whatever one you could get a payer to give to you to tell you what their fee schedule is. They do tend to follow Medicare. They're, okay. Even if they're higher, they tend to follow the same logic, if you will, yeah. as Medicare. So you can kind of look at those and recognize which pay better than others for most okay. people. Most areas of the country, the 97112, 97530, and 97535, that's the ones I just mentioned, therapeutic activities, neuromuscular, re-ed, ADL, self-care, mm-hmm. are generally better than manual therapy and Therax. Oh, interesting. Not always, but if you learn that about yep. your own area in your own practice, if you have things that can reasonably and accurately be described in the other categories, use those codes because it better reflects what you're doing. Right, right. I'm going to ask you a question about, so I'm thinking about your practice and how you have a brick and mortar space. So it's it's scalable to have multiple people there. People are coming to you, so you're not driving to them. There's there's kind of an efficiency with that that model, right? The system that you set up in your business where you can be billing for three or four hours of therapy at one time and kind of back to back because people are coming to see you. You know, it it lends itself to an insurance-based model. When I think about like, for example, a sensory integration clinic where we're seeing children, right? And you're spending... 45, 50 minutes with the child, you're talking with the parent, then you're documenting afterwards, you might be doing a lot of report writing, like a lot, like a two or three hour long report, right? So I guess I'm kind of coming back to what you said at the beginning, like, are there certain practices that you think do not lend themselves well to an insurance-based model? Because I know some, a lot of insurances are like, we don't reimburse for sensory integration because the quote evidence isn't there yet. I think we're getting close to the evidence being there based on what I'm reading in our literature. But, Mm -hmm. but, you know, do you have comments after I say something like that? Like, I I try to think, how could it be an insurance-based model work for that type of practice? But maybe it's, maybe it's a challenge to, to do that then. I don't know. So you're saying for a pediatric practice in particular? Yeah. Um, Like, is it the same Or is it that you can have, like with hand therapy, I'm imagining that you could even see multiple clients at a time, it almost seems like. Like you could have someone doing some sort of, thinking about it more like a gym where you could kind of be tending to multiple people at once than a model like sensory integration where you have to be like you with a child and the parent or something. Does that make sense? Like, do you know what I'm asking? So it, yes, practice style and preference and feasibility, right? Um, Yeah. If you look at some of the data from practices, particularly physical therapy practices, Mm -hmm. the amount that they generate per therapist is dramatically higher by 50% or more than I've ever routinely been able to do here. Wow. So I've never aspired to meet that because I know that they do it by overlapping, grouping, seeing patients every 15 minutes, 
and really running and then relying on support staff, either therapy assistants yeah. or even aides, unlicensed personnel to carry out much of their treatment theoretically under supervision. Yeah. And yes, you can bill more. You will be more profitable that way. And I've worked in clinics that were higher volume rather than lower volume. And I was exhausted and didn't sleep well at night because I worried that yeah. I missed things. So we have held pretty tightly to a nearly one-on-one model where the patient is those codes are for one-on-one care yeah basic description in the codes so i feel like they have purchased or have committed they're interested in seeing me yes (laughs) or the other therapist in the clinic they're not as interested in seeing somebody who might someday be a therapist or has been even you know and there are some fantastic support staff that are really good yes of Um, course and i'm not at all dismissing that possibility but i feel like even if i'm doing something with a client that i could delegate but i'm listening to what they're telling me right I learn things about their condition that they didn't think to mention. And if I only had 15 minutes at best to listen to them and I was passing them to somebody else, I feel yeah. like I would miss it. <laughs> so, and I love the relationships that we build yeah. with people. So yes, you can do it. You can run higher volumes because we are in a single place and because our clients are adults, right? <laughs> we can give them instructions. They can generally follow through. But as soon as I've turned my attention to the other person, if you have two people there at once, you're I'm yeah. no longer providing skilled service. Exactly. One. Yeah. <laughs> so I say nearly one-to-one because we do do a little bit of dovetailing. We use fluidotherapy or paraffin or... Yes, that's what I was thinking of, things like that. Of their care. So they might be there a few minutes early and we might start them on something like that while I'm finishing with the other one. Right, um, just to get them ready, like a preparatory activity mm-hmm. to get them ready for the OT session. Yep. 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 So there's can be a little bit of dovetailing. Certainly yeah. there's some great group juju that happens because people meet the other people in the clinic or, you know, I love some of the interactions between the patients, clients themselves. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. What are you in for? (laughs) (laughs) And some of that's that's super fun and super valuable to know that you're not alone as well. But you do have to kind of decide what suits your soul and suits your bank account (laughs) because both matter. Yeah. It sounds like a very OT way of running a hand therapy clinic. You know, you're focused on that client and like making sure that the treatment that you're giving them is is situated in the context of their lives, like knowing their life, knowing yeah. how this hand injury is affecting their life. Like we have so much to offer, even in areas of practice that are more medically based, kind of like your practices. It's a more medical model maybe than an SI clinic or maybe other community-based pediatric services mm-hmm. or things like that. But we can always bring that OT kind of focus to it and that that heart and also being a savvy business owner. I love it. You just epitomized that so well. And I feel like that's one of the things that has been the most beautiful about being on my own. I, mm. As soon as I was sort of in my own space and not say as part of a doctor's office where I was truly representing how can I help you? Yes. I feel like that really came out. And it's one of the things that I've loved in this second half of my career, second half so far of mm-hmm. my career, is just the ability to really listen. I often say it's never just a hand injury. People come right. to us because of their injury, but it brings people to these fascinating points in their lives because it affects your ability to support yourself. It affects your relationship with your employer, with your family, with people in your household. If you're the caregiver and you can't do it, it brings these tremendous loss of self and self-efficacy mm-hmm. and roles that are so OT they yeah. come to us because of the injury. And I that's what I feel like I lose if I don't get a chance to hear them and listen to why does it matter if you can't make a fist? Yeah. And that is the beauty of the OT profession, how you just said it right there. Like it's not just hand therapy. There is so much more to that. You're seeing them during this process where they're being required to adapt in so many ways. And that that's really the process. This is OA theory, you guys, my favorite OT theory. But you're seeing them in the process of, of them having to go through this internal discombobulation, essentially, where they're learning to adapt and change in so many different situations in life. And that is not at all 
what a PT does when they see someone for hand therapy. I love PTs. They, they do great work, but that's not their scope of practice. You know, our scope of practice is looking at the context, looking at the adaptation, looking at the occupation and the internal state of self-efficacy that people, that's really what we do as OTs is help them be into that state of self-efficacy. And I love that you use those words. So great. I uh, had lunch with a former client this last week, and we both remember a very specific conversation. She had a distal radius fracture and then had complications with complex regional pain syndrome and had a very hard Mm. way to go through the whole thing. And so I, you know, gently kept saying, you know, this may not completely resolve. You may have some leftovers from this and kind of gently said it a number of times along the way, starting to help her think toward this could have permanent changes to my life. But she and I both remember one specific day where she just got this completely white look on her face Mm -hmm. and said, oh my gosh, I just heard what you said. Did you say this is never going away? (laughs) And I said, it might not. Yeah. And she just burst into tears. And she said, I know that's not the first time you said that to me, but it's the first time I heard it. And it ended up changing. They sold their home. She they couldn't maintain their yard. She quit, had to quit her job. She couldn't, you know, it just led her and her husband to these tremendous life changes. And so to be able to be a part of that and support her as she went through, Mm. I said, you know, you can live a full and happy life, even if this hand doesn't work. Yeah, that's huge. And she still, she's a number of times said that back to me. Hmm. Just love that it stuck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, What a great story. It's, I mean, it's a sad story, but a great story about helping people through that process, the the loss and also the ability to adapt in the face of things that seem to be such obstacles to our participation in life, you know? It eventually led to cool things for them. They were able to spend more time with a new grandbaby because they were able to, they didn't have to take care of property here. They Mm -hmm. gave up having pets at home, but that meant that they're mobile and their children and grandchildren were out, are out of town, but they can move between the two. Yeah. So it led, it led to really cool things, but you can't see that when you're in the middle of it. (laughs) Right. It just feels hard as all or most adaptation does. (laughs) It doesn't feel great. It's like growth mindset. We're like, oh, learning from failure. It sounds all great to say it, but then it's Mm. like, hmm. (laughs) When you say it, it sounds fun. When you're in the middle of it, it is not so much fun. But let's wrap up with that. Actually, that's a great segue into the, the questions that I always ask people at the end. So what has been your biggest failure or fail learn, as I like to say, in your years of running your practice? And what did you learn from it? What do you think other people can do to avoid that same mistake? I'm glad you mentioned that ahead of time because it, there, there are so many things that you know you could think back and look differently. And I had a very different vision for my practice when I started it. I was envisioning myself and one other practitioner, a very small practice, mm-hmm. and I went through a divorce a few years ago, which Mm. is what led to the decision of, wow, this was a second income, but now it's my only income. So it was a very specific decision to grow the practice. Yeah. I am pretty sure prior to that point and probably including that point, I wasn't sure marketing as I thought of it worked. (laughs) 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 I'm just not good at marketing. It's Mm. hard and it's uncomfortable and... I don't know if it makes any difference anyway. So I would say one of the things is probably thinking that marketing didn't work. It's a mindset. Yes. And so it was truly something I never really questioned. We had enough patience to keep the two of us busy. I just wanted a simple, tiny practice where my coworker and I took really good care of people and we just didn't have to worry about anybody else. Right, right, right. (laughs) We accomplished that, but we could have helped more people if I would have hmm. thought about what if we did try to reach more people and what if more people knew about us? So that would say one thing is that thinking marketing didn't work was probably, it's a little disappointing looking back, like we could have helped more people than we did. What would you have done? What would you have done differently for that? Sorry, that brought up another question in my mind. Like, what do you it's wish okay. you would have started doing sooner? Like reaching out more, like doing more direct yes. marketing to people? Yes, more yeah. outbound instead of waiting for the phone to ring. Okay just being more proactive in reaching out. It is our job to tell people that we're here and can solve their problem. Yeah. It's not their job to find the most obscure pair of hand therapists in the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we were here, competent, 
capable and able, we could have mm -hmm. helped more people. So that's a little bit disappointing. And then the other more concrete one is I'm pretty sure I wasted about $50,000 in that transition. That meant we had to move from one suite to another because we needed more space in making arrangements to pay for the build out for the construction to make the new space ready for us. I did not have a solid written estimate from a contractor in hand. I had talked okay. to three people right. who gave me ballpark estimates, which were consistent. Yep. <laughs> and based on that information, I negotiated the lease. And when I actually got the estimate, it ended up $50,000 more. more than I had anticipated. Yeah. So I had, they had told me I could get it done for 30,000. I thought, oh, you know how construction goes. It's going to be 50 or 60,000. And end, it was the 80. lowest estimate was 80. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good, that is a straight up lesson there that everyone can like get it in writing. Like that's like, <laughs> that's a Detailed. great piece True of advice there. <laughs> Right. So, and it goes for many things, right? Write it down. Yes, document totally. What you, document what you think is going to happen. Right. Write down the names of those people you talk to at the insurance companies too. And you're, it's always good to write for stuff sure. down. Okay. So what, what is the, the next question is ending on the positive note. So what is going so well right now in your practice and what would you recommend others do to have similar, similar success? I am tremendously grateful for the people that I work with, for the whole group of therapists. I mean, this is not, I didn't build this, we built this together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've had an office manager who's been with me since 2012, so was with me within about a year after I started, and she's stayed with me the whole time. She is our organized and tenacious person yes. that that makes the insurance stuff happen. And so she knows how it works. She didn't when she started. She had zero experience with medical billing, but she is capable, tenacious, and smart. Yeah. And I was able to help her enough to get started, as did the person who had worked just before her. So I'm tremendous. I only half jokingly say I don't want to do private practice if you're not working with me. <laughs> right. I say that to my practice manager, too. I'm like, please don't ever leave me. I mean, I know we have everything written down just in case you ever decide to leave, but please don't leave. Like, <laughs> I, told really. you, I totally understand. I mean, if you want to do something yes, different. It's, absolutely. I 100% understand. And if she wants to do something different, I will, yes, um, right. I will help her make her dreams come true. True, but <laughs> but I love working with her and I love yeah. the other therapists. Yeah. So and I would say in terms of doing that, the the classic line from every entrepreneur is to hire slowly and fire quickly. Yes. If something's not working, don't keep forcing it, let it go. Yeah. And I've been flexible and creative with the therapists who do work with me because they're most of them are moms. They have other things in their lives. And yeah. so I've been tried to be extremely accommodating and flexible, but in exchange and in return, they've been reliable. They're a treat and a joy to work with. They mm -hmm. take fantastic care of their patients. So treat your employees well, tell them every day that you're thankful. Yes. Because unless you want to truly be a solopreneur and do it all yourself, you need other people with you. Yeah, I think it's interesting asking this question on almost every episode. I guess I've asked it every episode I've done that's an interview. Mm. That is frequently the answer people give for the what's going mm. so well right now. The people I work with, that my employees are amazing. Like, I, you know, it's, it's amazing. really interesting to see that the quality of the people you hire kind of dictates your satisfaction with your business. So tell everyone where they can connect with you because I am I am sure that you may have people calling you for coaching because this is something that I think a lot of new therapists need someone kind of helping guide them, helping walk them through the process if they are going to do, I mean, I know you probably don't just do insurance-based stuff in your coaching, but tell people where they can find you and if they want to get in touch with you to talk more about this. I'm always happy to talk about hand therapy and about business mm -hmm. <laughs> and OT in general. I've helped people in all different practice settings. So it's not just hand therapy. Okay. It's what I know the best, but right. at, at a heart, we are OTs. We use the same billing structures and, and the yeah. system and credentialing systems with the insurance that everybody does. So I have a website, joannkeller.com, J-O-A-N-N. K-E-L-L-E-R.com. People are welcome to friend me on Facebook. 
I have a couple of, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I have a couple different Facebook groups, a private practice link for therapists that okay. might be of interest. So people can message me if they're interested in joining that group. And then hand therapy link, if there are any hand therapy types hanging cool. on. <laughs> okay. So there's two, you have two Facebook groups that you moderate then? Yep. Okay. So these are, these are a really great resource because I love Facebook groups because I love that they are a place where people can kind of interact around a topic. So those two groups, say those again, they were hand therapy link. And what was the other one? Private practice link. For Private therapists. practice link for therapists. So those are groups that Joanne moderates if you want to get her expertise. <laughs> In, a, in the free <laughs> version connect. online. Now, I will say, I, I have said this before about people that have come on the podcast. I am really big about OTs valuing our time. I just want to put a word out there to all, anyone who's listening that if you contact Joanne for coaching, that is a paid service that you're going to pay her her rate. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is, but you're going you're gonna to pay her for that service because sending someone who has this level of expertise, a big list of questions and asking them to do it for free is not okay. I've been talking about this a lot on social media right now that as OTs, I think a lot of times it's, we've touched on it a little about we, we tend to be bleeding hearts, which leads to us not valuing our own time, which then leads to us not valuing other people's time. And I'm going to be a little controversial here and say we should be paying other OTs for their time if we're asking them to provide us coaching in a business type of format. So that is my little soapbox there. I don't know if you want to add anything, Joanne. My goal would be that you earn that back though through either expediting your own journey. Yes. Or clarifying or preventing mistakes that I've already made. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. That to you. That should be your goal if you're spending money on getting help from people is that that money that you're investing in yourself and your own learning and your own growth. Yes. I've totally not done this by myself. I have paid lots of coaches, taken lots of training and invested a lot in how do I make this business of hand therapy make sense? Yes. And so I'm happy to share that back with people as well, but it is worth investing in yourself and your own knowledge and your own skills. We didn't learn business as part of our Right, right, right. (laughs) And I'm sure you've touched on that before, but it's a whole separate set of skills and knowledge that you have to acquire somehow. Absolutely. I like that you you took the positive spin when I was like, people, you got to value, you don't value yourself. <laughs> like, but it is, it is a value, it is a value thing. And like, I love the way you framed it as like a positive where I was kind of giving the challenge, like you framed it as a, as a positive to say, value yourself enough to invest in yourself and know yeah. that it's going to get you to where mm-hmm. you want to be much more quickly, maybe than you would on your own. And I think I've been meaning to do, I, I have it on my list. I just maybe later in this fall, I want to do a episode on how to choose a business coach, like how, questions to ask yourself if you're going to work with someone and how to, how to choose someone. And I think that's a very good kind of teaser for people to think about, like, what do you want to get out of a coaching relationship? And what questions do you need to ask to help you get to where you want to go more quickly than you might on your own? And that's how you can enter a coaching call too with someone. So I love that you're telling people to value themselves. So let's end on that note, positive note. Thank you so much, Joanne. This was so great for people. I think it's going to offer them so much value and kind of clear up some of the big black box of questions around insurance-based practices. I appreciate you making time. You're a busy woman. (laughs) I'm happy to do it. It's fun for me to help other people. And like I said, other people have helped me. And don't be afraid to ask people for help and just know that if you need extra help, it may be worth the investment. Yeah, that Facebook group or the Facebook groups you run are great places. So yeah, I'll see you there. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bye, Joanne. All right, take care. Oh my gosh, don't you just love OT practitioners? I have said this about so many people who have come on the podcast, but to me, Joanne just embodies the true nature of an OT. She has the soul of an OT. And I loved how she helped me reframe my (laughs) 
kind of, you guys know this if you listen to the podcast enough. I have a very like challenging kind of direct personality and I loved how she just took my kind of challenge to us to value our time and flipped it as a positive and said, it's about investing in ourselves as well when we pay for services to help us in our business. And I tend to forget that. I I love that perspective and, and have used it many times myself when I have invested in business coaching as well. So I loved this interview. I started recording and now have not thought of what my main takeaway was. But honestly, that little jolt of positivity she gave me at the end is a good reminder to me. And that is what I am going to hold near and dear to my heart as I walk away from recording this episode today. I want to give you guys a little call to action. I would love, love, love if you listen to this episode. I want you to take a screenshot of your screen on your phone when you're listening to the podcast and share it to your Instagram stories and tag me at Laura Park Fig. That's my Instagram handle at Laura Park Fig because I want to meet listeners. I love connecting with listeners on Instagram. And if you learned something today or from other episodes and you have not done a review yet, please, please, please leave a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts because that helps more OT practitioners and other healthcare practitioners find this podcast to help them run savvy and successful businesses. I am really hopeful that there are more people than just OTs listening to this podcast so that we can really elevate OT entrepreneurship to be the people who people in the healthcare world want to follow when we think about entrepreneurship. So I want us to be leaders, not just among OT professionals, but also among all healthcare professionals, because I think we have a lot to offer. So take a small step this week, today, this moment, whatever your small step is, take a takeaway from this episode and take a small step because small steps make great gains over time. So until next time, mind your OT business.